just going to pray to get us started. Um, and then Dr. Hillis is going to have the first hour, and I'll have the second hour. So let's come before God. Holy God, we praise you that you are the God of all glory, the God of all light, the God of all truth, the God of all wisdom, the God of all hope. And Lord, I've just been struck in the last day by the thought that there's nothing we could do to ever diminish your glory. And God, we just praise you that you rule over um, all the affairs of people. God, all these things that we talk about, the things here that um, break our heart and burden us, the things that let us see you at work and rejoice. God, you are over all of that. And Lord, you are on a mission in the world to, um, to heal, to restore, to draw people back to you. God, to cause peace and healing to go out to every corner of the world, um, every human heart, every human relationship. God, we praise you for that. And Lord, we want to add to your glory. God, we want our lives, um, our decisions, the way we do our work, the way we worship you in our, with our, um, our minds and our hearts and our whole beings. God, we want that to add to your glory. So God, I pray that in this session, Lord, we would each hear from you in a really personal way what this message has for us, what it has for our work in the world and the mission that you're calling us to. God, would you help Dr. Hillis and I to, um, Lord, speak your words and speak your message and have hearts that are open to what you are saying as the God who created all this, the God of help, the God of healing. Lord, we praise you. Amen. So it's bad when they're trying to get somebody who's so, like, non-techie to wear two microphones. But anyway, that's that's what it is. So I, I'm assuming most of you were in that session that um, happened the last hour. So I also, in addition to working at the CDC, have an uh, adjunct appointment at Emory in the School of Public Health. And I absolutely love public health. And so you're going to hear a little bit more about a public health approach to service. And um, I'll start by having to... Um, hold this microphone because you probably noticed I don't stand still that well from the last session that I did. I am wanting to just say I'm so excited to be here. I um, had prayed about whether to come in person or send, um, you know, uh, video kind of like Phil did. And I just felt like the Lord was leading me to come in person. And you might think, well, like, why were you having to pray about it? Well, because um, I was the past 12 days I've been in Russia for about 10 of them, and then I was at meetings at Oxford University all day in, outside of London the day before yesterday, and I was on planes all day yesterday, and I got here last night at 11.59 p.m., and um, so I'm really uh, though thankful to be here and had felt like, you know, there's just something about being in person and the ability to convey a message that you feel like the Holy Spirit has given you. It just feels more powerful. So I do believe that the Lord has me here and has each of you here, and I'm really excited that you're here today. So we're going to start off with the public health approach, and I'm going to talk with you a little bit, and I'm going to add to that a little bit. There's four steps to the public health approach. If you know the public health approach, I'm going to say just raise your hand. A uh, couple of you. So that's good. Okay, so here's two of the first two of the steps. So the first step is what's the magnitude of the problem? And that's really what I just spent the whole last session sharing about, the magnitude of a global COVID orphanhood problem. But then um, step number two is what are the risk factors and protective factors? And um, that's a lot of what I will talk about in another COVID talk in a few minutes. And then I don't have four steps, so I can't go up step three and three, but just pretend I do. So step three is what are evidence-based interventions that are effective 
for increasing the modifiable protective factors and for decreasing the modifiable risk factors. And usually those are randomized trial data that you get for those, step three. But step four is how do you take what is effective at prevention in step three and make it scalable and sustainable? And so that's a little bit of what I'm going to talk with you about this morning in a COVID context. And I'll uh, take us and invite you to go with me to listen to a lot of what I've learned from a colleague in Iswatini, um, Echo Vanderwall, who is the co-founder of the Luke Commission. It's a, a large medical campus in the capital, and they have outreach to the entire country, which is relatively small. It has only four regions. Uh, if um, any of you have any of you ever been to Iswatini? If you have, raise your hand. <laughs> that was so funny. It's the one thing that we had in common. This is amazing because what's happening in Africa is they're really battling dual pandemics, the AIDS, HIV-AIDS pandemic and the COVID pandemic, and we don't have nearly enough um, data or love going to address those. Um, how many of you were convinced that love should lead us to get data and data should lead us to act in love? Were you convinced from my last session? Yes, I'm so glad. So let me tell a little story. One of the most famous CDC directors ever was a man named Dr. Bill Fagey. And he was he was a director many years ago, and he came in at the tail end of smallpox eradication. And he kept trying to figure out, could he do more by staying in the government, or could he do more by going to the mission field? And he would stay and be the head of CDC for a while, and then he'd go back to the mission field. And then he'd come back to be at CDC, and then he'd go back to the mission field. So he did this a lot of back-and-forth, back-and-forth stuff. And he's probably like 84 at this point in time. And I know Bill. I've talked to him a couple times. I don't know him well. But one of the most memorable talks that he gave, which I found disappointing, was um, I had to, he said, I had to decide whether I was going to stay in the government or in the church. And I decided I needed to stay in the government because the government has to take care of everyone. And then I just thought, well, the implication is the church doesn't have to take care of everyone. And I'm here to say we need to change that different kind of mindset. And I think that's a lot of what the public health approach invites us into. And as believers, what I'm seeing is as when believers walk into that public health approach and they get data to show the impact of what they're doing, their data tells a miraculous God story there is, that is irrefutable. So not only does love lead to data, and data leads to love, but when love is inside of your data, your data is a shouting testimony that is irrefutable. And that's what I'm going to show you. I um, am grateful that I'm able to present this from Echo. Um, and... Um, she is, she is just, she and her husband are just amazing. So let me talk a little bit about the background, the public health approach at the Luke Commission. This is a clinical center. Um, they actually are very engaged at the intersection and the linkage between clinical medicine and public health. So let me tell you a little bit about them. They provide free, compassionate, comprehensive, client-centered care to underserved populations in Eswatini. It used to be called Swaziland. It's a little circle of a country right up in the top of um, South Africa. The Luke Commission delivers health services at a fixed site, the Miracle Campus, and then via mobile hospital outreaches. They reach basically every major area of the country once a year with health brigades. All services, TB, HIV, COVID, are part of a comprehensive health care platform. They're motivated by faith, and they seek to treat every patient 
as a beloved father, mother, brother, sister, or child. So what happens when we're treating people that way? It is going to show in our data, I'm here to tell you. And more and more, we are having, because I serve in like a bilateral context, CDC, and multilateral collaborations with, you know, various UN organizations, increasingly the World Bank, UNICEF, US, UNAIDS, et cetera, are wanting to know, is there data that shows value added for faith groups? And even large foundations like Lego Foundation that has a bunch of money to give away. They're, they're wanting to understand is there value added for faith groups? And that is part of what, in this day and age, I'm hoping you all begin to think about how you show it. This, this slide set really shows it. Okay, this is the Miracle Campus. It started as Little Fields about 15 years ago. And then, remember I talked about step one, the, mag the magnitude of the problem? What is the magnitude of those two dueling pandemics? HIV prevalence in East Swatini is the highest in the world. Among women, 27% are HIV infected. Among adults, 27%. Among women, 35%. One out of three. Among men, 18%. Um, and COVID-19 has had a horrible impact on the country. In the middle of the second wave, they had the fourth highest rate of deaths in the world. And their population is over a little over a million. So the absolute number was relatively no, but remember how Bert was showing that curve and the denominator is important. The number compared to their population was high. They had in the second wave 400 severe critical admissions to their Miracle Campus, and in the third wave they had 600 severe critical um, admissions. And so this is what they were able to do. They were able to build this campus of um, all these tents, that you see there. And just hold on, by the way, because I'm going to go through some of this, and then we're going to have some questions and discussion. But I think it's such a wonderful example of the link between clinical medicine and public health and of those four steps of the public health approach. So one of the things I love about them is they are very dedicated to collaborating with the national government and to contributing to advancing the national response. Often your Christian mission hospitals are like these little enclaves and they really don't try to work with the government and the government really, they kind of are just like, we leave each other alone but we don't really benefit. And it's messy sometimes collaborating with the government, but if you can find the man or woman of peace in the government, you can take what you have and make it sustainable and scalable within the country with the government wanting their resources to support what works. Okay, so while TLC has adjusted strategies between enduring waves of the pandemic, they've managed, unlike many countries, for their HIV and TB care and treatment to continue uninterrupted, which is amazing. And it's really important. And um, since 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, March, they've collaborated and coordinated on a national response for COVID. Actually, the Ministry of Health cabinet members called them to ask for advice about, like, we don't know what to do, what, we, what should we be doing? And they are really looked to because they have acted with humility and love and truth they are really looked to by cabinet members in the country um, to make a difference and to give advice. And, again, most of the referral hospitals, I think there were only two other referral hospitals in the country, were turning away people who came to the gates if they knew those people were going to die because it makes their numbers look bad and they don't want to take a bed for somebody who is at death's door. TLC, they don't turn anybody away. Whoever comes, they try to love them and help them. These are the... Um, the first wave, the second wave, and the third wave shown. And in red, you see their ICU admissions. And um, here, this is the third wave. And here you see most of them were COVID cases. 
and these were COVID high care. These are severe, these are high care, and these are the COVID deaths. But we'll begin to see that the deaths are not that, they're basically not that higher in number-wise in the third than are in the second, even though the number, the denominator is much higher. So they really were able to decrease death. Again, the severity peak, you just see here this huge, um, severe, this huge peak in severe cases, and the gray is in the ICU. So they were working day and night. Ambulances were working day and night. There's, they just had to have God suddenly multiply what they were able to do. In the first wave, they were basically turning people upside down for prone breathing because that helps. And I, they just had a couple respirators. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story. This is what in the fourth wave the ICU looked like, just packed full. And these are some of their innovations. I've told you the magnitude of the problem for COVID and HIV. Now I'm going to get into some of the risk factors and protective responses. So this is an illustration of one of the clear risk factors for death is acute respiratory distress syndrome progression. And you can see from the 3rd of January to the 13th of January, like these lungs just basically filled up and we're not going to be working for moving air anymore. And so um, they seeing that you kind of have to stop those lungs from fu filling up and stop that acute respiratory distress from progressing, you know, as a risk factor for death, what do they do about it in step three in terms of interventions that work? Well, certainly they needed to start aggressive oxygen therapy at the earliest sign of respiratory distress because when there's um, – the minute you see signs of it, already it's pretty late and the, the likelihood of the patient declining very quickly and escalating very soon is high. And so um, often the physical signs will – uh, the physical signs will lag behind critically low arterial blood levels of oxygen. And so they began to see that, and they began to try to figure out what they could do. So what happened, though, is they didn't have enough oxygen. They're in the middle of South Africa. South Africa didn't have enough oxygen for the South Africans, so they were not about to send their oxygen to Eswatini. So sitting around their table one night, Echo and her husband Harry and their team began to ask God, like, Lord, what do we do? We are, this is going to keep happening. We cannot do anything unless we have oxygen. And they felt like God led them to take out a credit line of several million dollars, maxing out all their credit cards, and just take out a loan and get what they needed from South Africa in terms of the plans and the engineering equipment to build an oxygen plant on their Miracle Campus for the country. Not just for themselves. They were building it for having enough oxygen for the whole country. And do you know God let them do that? And they were able to do it. And so now you're going to see what happened after they take a step in faith. Sometimes if you're walking towards the Red Sea, you have to put your foot in the water before it parts. Whether it's the Red Sea getting out or the Jordan River getting in. Often you have to put your foot in before you know the water's going to part. That's what they were doing, like signing away every asset they had. Um, and so here you see, look at how their oxygen consumption just dramatically increased. But in a minute, you're going to see what they're doing in the first wave to the second wave to the third wave. But in the third wave, you're going to see how by the time it increased, they had a lot more respirators and they had their oxygen plant up and going. It was just amazing. This is uh, the oxygen factory, what they were able to do. And this is also what's amazing. So they were able to get the plans and get the equipment from South Africa, but they hire something like 283 uh, Saswatis, nationals, 
many of whom are orphans because Swaziland also has the highest percentage of orphaned children in the world. I mean, and now, like, they're young adults at this point. But isn't it amazing? I mean, just think about it. God is using the former orphans to bring heir to the nation. Is this amazing? We need them more than they need us. Okay. So the other thing that they began to see is a problem in this step two is when patients had a lot of anxiety, nothing that they did helped. And so they realized that they had to begin to deal with their anxiety. And they realized that, you know, in um, Iswatini, normally if, you know, I'm sick and I'm in the hospital, my sister, my husband, my mother, somebody comes to sit with me the whole time and take care of me, and I feel loved and accompanied. But in COVID, you can't do that. So they um, began to decide, actually, there is the Swati staff said, we need breathing coaches, and we just need somebody whose job it is trained to sit by the bed and accompany people and help them breathe well. And so suddenly they have this army of breathing coaches that, I mean, it's not rocket science. You know, people even without a high school diploma can be trained to be a breathing coach. They were able to assign breathing coaches to all their severe and critical patients, encouraging deep breathing and monitoring the the respiratory rate, you know, periodically, uh, regularly and routinely. And this is just an example of what the breathing coach was doing. Do you know this has been um, uh, shared with uh, some of my colleagues at PEPFAR, because I also work for the uh, the State Department, and um, we're beginning to talk about, like, could this be used more around the world? Again, just breathing coaches more there. But um, they began to really make a difference. And when they had breathing coaches, people were much less likely to decompensate rapidly. They also saw that they could use their um, electronic medical record to flag early warning signs by just having it beep when somebody's respiratory rate went too high or their PO2 was low. And... um, you see that, like the respiratory rate's 32, it's abnormal, so it beeps, and then somebody immediately goes over to them and tries to see what they can do to help them. But this is the divine intervention that I wanted to talk about. So in the, in the first wave, they had four ventilators. In the second wave, they had 12. And they thought they were prepared in the third wave when they had 25 ventilators, but it was not enough. But they kept seeing God send them more ventilators to their campus right before the spikes went up. Like, how do you explain that other than divine intervention? So, you know, Echo and Harry are invited to present. Like, they have been so innovative and courageous in a country that, what do you mean you've gone into a country where all they had was, like, lay you upside down and let you try to breathe on your stomach to a full-blown ICU? She is not an intensivist, and her husband isn't either. But sometimes God invites you into things that you're not trained to do because it's what the people need at that point in time. And because... He is going to use that data to bring glory to his name. This is a slide I um, find unforgettable. It's what I think of as the orange and green curve. So here you see the third wave. Here you see this on ventilators here in the mustard color. And look at the green. The ventilators are coming to them right before they need them. They never had anybody who needed a ventilator that did not have one. So not only does love invade the data, drive us to data, and data drives us to love, but data has an amazing testimony that the Lord wants to show to the nations about what he can do when his people obey him. If they had not taken out that big loan, they would not have, have had oxygen to even use with those ventilators. So it was, it was just amazing. 
then this is the other thing that the data showed. If you look at from wave two to wave one, three, what is their mortality rate? It, de it basically was halved. It went from 4.4 to 2.0%. Another thing that shows, oh my goodness, the data is showing the impact of work done with the compassion and wisdom and truth and humility that the Lord invites us to walk forward with. Okay, so that's all the COVID side. Let me talk a little bit about the HIV side. Maintaining continuous, you know, con continuing care. Um, they wanted to, they had to figure out a way since all their staff was busy all the time taking care of all these other patients, how are they going to keep all of their HIV-infected patients um, Virally suppressed, it means the amount of virus in their blood, HIV virus, is so low it's undetectable, and that is what we call virally suppressed, and that means that you can't spread it to somebody else and that you are more likely to remain stable and not have any symptoms. So in the middle of all this, what we are really recommending from PEPFAR and CDC is multi-month dispensing, like giving someone, if I have HIV, giving the doctor, the clinician, nurse, giving me six months of drugs so I don't have to come back all the time to clinics that are busy and often understaffed. And so multi-month dispensing, they really ramped that up. Decentralized distribution of drugs. Sometimes churches are some of the best places in communities to have someone who's willing to volunteer and dispense the um, antiretroviral medicines to people who need them, and then that keeps those people away from the clinics and the facilities where that are swimming in COVID. And then also they needed to get transportation. Some people just didn't have a way to get in, and they had a hotline where if somebody really just needed transportation, they could call and get the transportation. And then this is what's amazing. Again, the data is giving the testimony to the quality of their work. Because so I, because I'm serving within our global AIDS program, I see all these other countries are coming in, and during surges, they're not able to maintain viral load suppression and their HIV-infected persons. But in Eswatini, look, this is their second surge, and they were able to maintain viral load suppression for females and males at basically the 96 and 94% levels, which is what you want. And here in COVID surge number three, they were also able to maintain viral load suppression at night. Basically, it's, it, it was mostly in this quarter, um, uh, fiscal year 21, quarter two, but a little bit in quarter one. But you see, like their data is showing that their people living with HIV are getting everything they need while they're all in those in the ICU and sending people all over the country to help deal with COVID. So um, what did they do? We call it maintaining the gains in HIV control. What did they do to do that? They would send reminders to people when they needed to have refills. If the refill visit was missed, they'd send an appointment. And for multi-month dispensing, they increased to your six-month um, uh, type of um, pill distribution system. And again, another thing they did is they selected 45 sites around the country that could um, qualify as those um, uh, decentralized uh, drug distribution centers, and um, they tried to make, listen to the patients say, like, what is the place of all the places we have that's most convenient for you, and let them get their drugs there. And then um, the other thing that they did is they, um, we actually worked with them from PEPFAR to develop messages of hope from HIV and messages of hope for COVID. And this little um, thing on here is a uh, Saswati uh, a message of hope for people living with HIV, consistent use of your antiretrovirals will enable you to live a long, productive, and healthy life. But let me say a little bit about this. Um, 
Rich Stearns made famous in his book, The Hole in Our Gospel, former president of, um, of World Vision, break my heart with the things that break yours. And I think that's the first thing to pray. But I, I do not think God ever wants us to stop there because it's like one side of the coin. And the other side is fill my heart with the hope that is yours. Roman 15, may the God of all hope fill you with all hope, joy, and hope as you believe in him so that you may overflow with joy or hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. But um, they were really able to try to um, take the lessons they had learned for HIV and apply them to COVID and for both be voices of hope for people living with either or both. And um, again, their theme is they are partnering to reach the very last one and every last one. And this really sets them out from the rest of the country. Okay, so I'm hoping that you saw they um, wanted, they knew the magnitude of the problem. They tried to figure out in the COVID context and even in the HIV context, what were some of the risk factors that they needed to address in their um, interventions. And then basically they took what worked and they made it um, normative care within their settings, and they took to our work, especially with the oxygen, and they basically have enough oxygen to share with the whole country. And so you can imagine how much glory God is getting and how much people are talking about, oh, my goodness, can you believe what happened with those people at the Luke Commission? So that's all I have. And so I haven't really planned anything else besides for the next 20 or 25 minutes, we can have a discussion, and I would like to know, like, if you have any questions about what I said now or this morning, we can talk about that, and if not, I have some questions for you about the public health approach and how you see it laying out, and let me just say, at about 5 till 11, I will leave because um, I have uh, people staying at my house that came from Europe to meet with me for four days, and they got there last night, so I need to get on a plane and get back home. Um, my husband is taking care of them be, uh, because I have some stuff I have to do at home. So I'll, when I walk out, I'm not trying to be rude. I just have a plane to catch. So uh, I would love to hear any questions or – yes? Uh, I don't know what they're getting, but I would be sure they're only getting something FDA approved. But that is the question I could find out. I know they are using some therapeutics, but I don't know what they are. This is mostly what I know, but thank you for the question. to happen, but the systems aren't in place to make it happen. Yeah. 
And what um, I, a lot of times, am in that situation of, okay, Lord, I know it needs to happen, but you've got to show me some system that's making it happen. So, like, this example of the Iswatini one is a system making it happen. Um, the example I gave about the action this morning and World Without Orphans, like, reaching 20 million families, that's a system making it happen. Um, I'm going to go to your question, but let me tell one little story because I think it's really a good example. So I was also deployed from CDC in the 2014 Ebola outbreaks in um, Liberia and Sierra Leone. And um, when I got there, I was very disturbed because this is what was happening. Pretend I'm a woman, I'm sick, and I have a fever. Um, They are suspecting I could have Ebola. I have a two-year-old. The ambulance would come and take me with the asymptomatic two-year-old to the Ebola treatment center tent, which looked a lot like these tents all over the country, um, all over each country, because everyone was afraid that my two-year-old was harboring asymptomatic Ebola, and if I left her with you, wait a minute, I'm sorry, I have a little reminder for me to pray at 10.30 in the morning about something, and (laughs) I'm sorry, my alarm's going off because I forgot to turn it off, okay. So, uh, so they would, um, you would, you would be afraid for me to leave my asymptomatic two-year-old with you because you would think, what if that baby's harboring Ebola and then I get it and I die and all my family gets it? So the the kids were going with kids under five were going with the mothers or fathers to the Ebola treatment centers and then they were being admitted with them and guess what? They were catching Ebola there and they were dying. So you can imagine how heartbreaking that was to me, and how I just wept. And I was there supervising new EIS officers from CDC, and they were crying, and I was crying. It was horrible. But your question is what I asked. I said, like, there has got to be somebody who is figuring out a solution. So I just started asking around, is anybody figuring out what to do about this? And lo and behold, in Sierra Leone, an hour and a half from the capital city, there was an Ebola treatment center who had figured out what to do, and so I got a driver, and I went. And what they were doing is they were um, using um, nurses or members of the community that had had Ebola and survived, so they had antibodies on board, and they were having a tent next to the Ebola treatment unit for all the children, and the people who had had Ebola and survived were the ones taking care of, of them. And so then once I saw that, I was able to go back to the capital city, and because I'm with the government, you know, I would have these nightly meetings with UNICEF and UNAIDS and CDC and the World Bank, you know, all the uh, foreign experts that are sent in to help in an emergency. And I told, and people from the government. So I told them about this solution, and they say to me, well, my goodness, we have funding. We just need somebody to write the policy, and then we could just, like, put $3 million on that and, you know, scale it to the whole country in Sierra Leone. And everybody in the room is like, I mean, I'm a researcher. I'm not, I don't know about writing policy in another country. But everybody's saying, like, well, we don't really have anybody to write the policy. And I just said, well, like, let me try. So I had no clue what to do. But um, I was able to take other policies that have been written and approved. I'm here to tell you at 4 in the morning, the Holy Spirit woke me up, like, if you get up, I will give it to you. And I just got up and wrote it in, like, three hours. And then it was done, and I gave it to them. And they had to improve it, but, like, it was there. But why am I telling you this story? When you see that the resources needed are not available, somebody has figured out how to do it. And ask until you find who it is and then go learn from them 
and then see if that voice of yours can amplify what they're doing. So this happened with the COVID orphanhood situation in the U.S. Because, of course, the U.S. is strapped. Everybody's strapped. Like, what are we going to do? So often, just like Echo, in that situation in Eswatini, there are believers ready and waiting in, um, you know, the Lord's volunteer army that can do a lot. So... I was trying to learn, has anyone stepped in as children are having their parents die and found a way to collaborate with the government but not to take that many resources from the government in order to provide some initial help? And my answer took me to an African-American pastor, Bishop Aaron Blake in Texas. Are any of you from Texas or not? Okay. Oh, you are. Oh, awesome. So, um Brownville is where he's from, and um, he had realized uh, probably 10 years ago that um, most of the kids entering foster care in his county were African American, and nobody was helping them. So he decided he was going to try to collaborate with social services and with the um, schools to figure out maybe he could mobilize all the churches and the pastors and children's ministries and, you know, youth ministries leaders so that if they, who does the funerals? I mean, like, and who is the one that people call on when some tragedy happens? It's the faith leaders. Maybe he could mobilize them to have enough basic training that they would know how to visit a family, have some basic training and trauma-competent care, which you can probably get in six, you know, sessions of an hour, and then um, go visit, see what was needed, and maybe within the faith community, if it's somebody just, the mom just needs a car to get to work for three months because her car is broken and she's not going to have enough money to fix it for three months, can someone lend her a car so she can keep the kids and at least they'll be with her? And is there a women's Bible study who wants to begin to visit her and just help be somebody who just wants to be a friend? Because so often people are not literally orphans, but many of us in this room have times we live as orphans. God is a father to the fatherless and sets the lonely in families. And often I think of figuratively, whoever to me is an orphan is that lonely person that God wants to support in some way. So lo and behold, Bishop Blake figured out how to mobilize the church to find the people, and he made this relationship with social services if it was really severe and the children were having PTSD or depression or suicidal or the moms were or the dads were, whatever, he would know when to refer them. But a lot, probably 80% of what they needed, honestly, the local church and community could take care of. And then the other thing that happened is the schools often are the first place where they know if a child has been orphaned by COVID or is really stressed out because their mom or dad is sick and in the hospital and they don't know if they're coming home. So he developed a relationship with the principals and the counselors in the schools in his area who know if there's a child who they're worried about, they call him. So I found out that he was speaking at a Christian Alliance for Orphans meeting um, about six weeks ago. And I got on the plane and went. I mean, I was supposed to speak, but I had planned to just send them something because I had a lot of stuff to do. But then when I found out he was there, I thought, I am stalking that man until he talks to me. No, not really. But, you know, I just thought I am following him around until I get some of his time with my computer and with my data. So um, I, I go there. He's giving the closing plenary session, and it is phenomenal. And you could hear a pen drop. He's just such an anointed speaker. 
you know. And so um, afterwards I run up and I say, like, I've got to talk to you. I'm Dr. Susan Hills from the CDC. Would you please give me five minutes? And he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? And he goes, yeah, I'll be glad to. Let's well, give me ten minutes and then let's go sit down. So we did. So I begin to show him some of my COVID data from the United States, which I didn't even show you all today, which is heartbreaking. We have 189,000 children in the United States have lost their mother or father or grandparent, caregiver, and in another three weeks it will probably be 200,000. And, you know, so we we have this problem everywhere. So um, I begin to show him some of those data. And he began, and if you're African American or Hispanic or American Indian, you have a dramatically increased likelihood of being an orphan. Now, that is something we ought to all feel indignant about and be standing up for. And honestly, the colors of the skin in this room need to be changed. I mean, like, we need to be working a lot more together, all of us in all these areas. Okay. But um, uh, so I showed it to him. He begins to weep, and he says, and I said, what? like, why are you crying? And he goes, oh, Dr. Hillis, you don't understand. And I thought, oh, no, I bet I offended him. I said, like, what do you mean I don't understand? And he goes, I have been telling pastors all over Texas that there are a lot of COVID orphans and somebody knows how many they are and where they are. And then God sends you to find me to show me your slides and I see how many there are and where they are. This is exactly what we need to catalyze action for the churches. If I go up there and try to talk about that data, they're not going to listen to me. But would you just please come to, to all these pastors I'm gathering on November 4th? And I said, listen, I am in Russia. I don't care what time, day, and night it is, but Zoom works really well where I am, and I will be on the phone and on your Zoom meeting, and I was. And I can tell you, you know, there were a number of Hispanic and African-American pastors on the meeting that I did attend, and he wanted me to speak at it and show a few slides and then answer a few questions I was so honored by those people in that room, even on Zoom. I mean, I kept saying, like, what are your questions? No, Dr. Hillis, we just want to pray for you. And I said, well, I'll take it. Do pray for me. But what they have is they have a system now called Care Portal, and it's, uh, it's an informatic system that a church can be, many churches can be linked with the child protection system. And if the social worker in your town knows that I need you know, um, a crib or social services is not going to let me bring my baby home. They put it on the care portal and it goes to a lot of churches in a city and then somebody who can give the crib says, oh, I can give the crib and the um, child protection folks get it there. So that system he's doing is now working in 27 states. And so he said, Susan, like all we need to do is take that system that we already have and just multiply it for COVID. So, so what do I do? I get interviewed by high-level people in the media and um, on the Hill. I was at a had to do a congressional meeting last week, and so they asked me, "Are there any solutions?" And you know what I can tell them? The best solutions are coming out of the faith community. Listen to them collaborating in Texas and my story about Bishop Blake. So, there. If you ask, remember I talked to you about the next step. When you don't have what you know you have to have, ask God, show me where it is, and just begin to ask people. And I have found when I do that, he shows me somebody who has figured out what to do, and then honestly, I just copy them. Or I tell everybody else, like, you got to copy them, and you got to talk with them. So like those New York Times reporters calling me, I said, like, you got to talk to Bishop Blake. I am sending them to the Lord's mouthpieces. It is just amazing. Okay, did I answer your question? Okay, go ahead.
Yeah, that, that's a great question. Often I will have um, practical examples from the government that I can share. Okay, so like this Iswatini model, because they are so excellent, they get like $2 million of USAID funding a year to do health. So like you can't really be bad-mouthing the hand that's feeding you and that is promoting your effective models. So then I think the other thing I um, – I was very nervous when I first came to CDC 30 years ago because um, my boss's boss's boss said, like, she was getting ready to have a congressional meeting, and she said, Susan, you're going with me. And I thought, gosh, I'm scared. I don't know what to say to anybody in Congress. And she said, look, they are mad at us, but all we have to make sure they know is that our hearts are in the same place, and we ultimately value the same thing. So, for example, our hearts all want to stop COVID and stop people from dying of COVID. We may have different views about how to do that, but our hearts are on the same place, and we're going to go a lot farther together than we will if, if we are collaborating together than we will if we are fighting. And so I will say one other thing, and that is um, there's a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There that I really like because whenever you study a lot about one thing, like I have a lot of training in epidemiology and, um, you know, data analytics, uh, but the place I am in life now is more of a leadership, management, like uh, budgets, uh, politics kind of things I need to know about, and I don't know about those. So uh, one of the key things that you're talking about um, is um, when do you collaborate and when do you compete? And, and you don't really want to advance competition between government and faith groups but there's like, when do you decide we're going to be on the same side? But when are there sometimes when you really can't be on the same side because the values just will are um, not kingdom values and won't allow you to do it? So there's a book called Friend or Foe, question mark, when to collaborate, when to compete, and how to win at both. And it actually has helped me a lot just to have a framework in my mind for figuring out when is it worth trying to move together, move forward together and collaborate, and when is it probably not going to be effective. Okay, another question? Yes. Hi, so my name is Lizzie. I think we actually worked together at ICF last year. I was with Avi Hakeem's team. Oh, my goodness! <laughs> I can't believe that! You're here! Thank you. It's really great that you're, you're doing this, and thank you so much for speaking. Um, so I guess I, I really... I was in Avi's team, too! I bet we had such other spaces on this little Zoom call. Sure. I, I recognize your face. I saw your name in the Zoom whenever you're yeah, this is amazing. I think it's pretty amazing that we have never met at CDC, but like we meet here at this conference. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much for answering her question. That actually was really helpful for me. I guess it's I'm a little bit newer to CDC. I've been there for two years now, but I do find that being in the pandemic and working kind of behind the scenes and doing all the data stuff, it can be really overwhelming. So I guess this is more of a personal question. Where do you find your calm? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd love to um, answer that question. Uh I find it by keeping first things first and um, having my foundation first be in seeking the Lord. 
every day. Like this morning, I mean, I, I read this morning from Jeremiah, make sh- Jeremiah and First Corinthians two to four and Psalm one hundred nineteen. But um, remember to seek me and keep the foundations foundational. Is what Jeremiah fifty is talking about. Um, and it's just such a joyful way to live. Um, I think it's a little bit like those those um, respirator curves that you saw. And I find that as I'm just walking in intimacy with the Lord and with his spirit, as I'm walking, he's, he's giving me what I need when I'm intentional about being in his presence and listening to him. I, I'm going to tell you a little bit more than, than you asked because I think it will be helpful. So um, it's about heaven's appointments. So every January, I take a several hours and sometimes half a day to just ask the Lord, what's on your calendar and your agenda for me this year? Because I want to be about doing what you're doing. So this year, I was reading Psalm 119, and there's a verse in Psalm, 80, Psalm 119, verses 89, 90, and 91. And they basically say something like this. By heaven's appointments, the earth stands. And by my appointments on earth, you will see my faithfulness stands. Every day, I have appointments for both. It's very paraphrased, but that's the idea. And I began to see my pink CDC calendar that we have, you know, on our, whenever we open our Outlook, you know. And I was seeing in my mind, like, what is it that I have on my appointments every day for the times I have appointments? Well, you have person, place, and time, your tri- epidemiologic triad. Like, who do I meet with? Where do I meet them? And um, at what time? So I thought, I'm going to do a word study in the scriptures of appointed appointments. And there's about 154 verses about appointed appointments in the scriptures. And lo and behold, their person, place, and time is there. But there's two other things that there. It is the purpose. And it's contributions and celebration. And what was shocking to me is celebrations are about a fourth of all the listings of appointed, appointed, appoint. And I thought, I don't do nearly enough of that, Lord. But so um, I began to realize that what drives my daily activity are my pink appointments on my calendar. And I thought, Lord, I want heaven's appointments to drive what I'm doing every day. I'm not saying those are not. But I, I felt like I was missing some of heaven's appointments by only letting that calendar drive what I'm doing. And so let me see if I have my little uh, um, journal I do. So this is my um, journal I write in every morning, including this morning. And so after that, I began asking the Lord every morning, well, like, what is a heaven's appointment that I might not be aware of? You may not think I'm answering your question, but I really am. Because part of, I think, what keeps us walking in peace is being about what the Lord has ordained for me that day. And not everything on my pink appointment calendar is something the Lord has uh, ordained for me that day. And I'm pretty comfortable about canceling things if I need to and rescheduling for later or just canceling them. I, I don't have a reputation for oh, that Susan Hillis. She always cancels on you. But I, I do cancel things pretty freely if I sense that oh, that really isn't what is most important today. So um, can you hold this for me just a second? Uh, the, the, book or the mic. The mic. You, you need to come here. Or some here. You, sorry. Okay. Okay. Thank you. No, we got it. Okay. So do you see here's my journal, and there's a line here at the bottom, and below the line I have this little squiggly stuff written. Can you see that there's a line right here, something written? So basically, um, most days I'll have a line and squiggly stuff written, 
the squiggly stuff written things. That's it. But the long line is um, those are things that I sense are heaven's appointments that he's showing me, the Lord is showing me in the morning that I hadn't really thought about doing. And not necessarily that day, but soon. And um, it's just so freeing. Because there's a lot of blessings I'm walking into that I have known the Lord for a lot of years, and I have never done that. But there are blessings I'm walking into, and there's burdens that I'm missing from um, taking this approach to time. Does this help you? Okay. Uh, and then uh, one more question, probably one or two, and then I'm going to need to go. Yes? Yeah, I think a lot of us uh, work on the interface between medicine and the lay community, the yeah. our, our churches. Yeah. And there's a lot of suspicion, a lot of misinformation out there about the, the pandemic. Yeah. And I think, oh, how do you defuse that? Have you found some good ways to defuse that because people have lost trust in our institutions because of the, the information? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, I have a really good working relationship and friendship relationship with our pastor and pastor's wife. And so I feel pretty free when, like, new data and new guidelines are coming out from CDC about the pandemic to let them know. But I also um, am committed to um, talking with them if I think they're making a mistake, but not holding it against them if they don't change their minds after I talk with them. So I can just give you an example. So at one point, um, the health, the or like, really early on, uh, the Sunday school workers were not wearing masks, the ones who were taking care of the children, when it was still mostly the Alpha and Delta variant had not come yet. And I was getting preliminary data from CDC that showed me, this is just ridiculous. You know, I know that there are not many pediatric deaths, but it, one pediatric death is unacceptable if it's preventable. So, like, they've got to be wearing masks. And so, like, I kept calling them and trying to um, walk through some of the preliminary data that was not public yet, and they did not yet feel convinced, but after about three weeks, they did. So why am I telling this example? I want to serve the leadership of the church that I know and that, that trusts me. And actually, we have this whole network at CDC that's trying to engage faith leaders, and I'm involved in that as well. And, like, we get 4,000 of them across the country on the phone every, like, two months, and often they'll ask me to speak to them. And if you want to speak to them, I could probably get you to speak to them. Just be in touch with me. But um, so... Uh, I think we can, this next step, like we can be a voice where the Lord is giving us favor for being a voice in my church or in this network. I can't be a voice for all those places where it's not mine to do. Okay, one more question or comment. Okay, it looks like we're done. Let me just pray for you all. Lord, thank you again for the time that you've given us to be together today. Lord, I thank you for um, your call on the lives of each person in the room. And, Lord, I just pray that um, all of us would have a sense of what is the next thing that you're inviting us into. And, Lord, I thank you for the freedom and joy you give us um, as we walk in heaven's appointments. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to tell you one other thing. Um, ways and paths. That's the other thing the Lord has been speaking to me a lot about this year. Like the way to get to where we live in Atlanta is you go from downtown, you go east. It's just the general direction. But the path is actually the GPS, like go right on such and such, go left on such and such. And I, um, 
Often I might know the general direction, which is really, really helpful to know and keep praying into, but I don't really know the path. And so, or sometimes I may even know the path, but I'm not really sure exactly where it's headed. And usually it's some combination of both. I don't find that the Lord usually gives me full revelation on both. But on a little bit of one, and from what I know about one, I do the best I can, you know, in freedom with other and vice versa. But again, this morning in Psalm 119, it's just something, if you pay attention to ways and paths and got the way God speaks about them in the Psalms, um, and even in some of the New Testament verses, and maybe even want to do a study on it. It's been pretty exciting to me and very freeing because um, I believe that we are um, influenced by the culture around us, a particularly, you know, uh, academic one that all of us are in, to have more clarity about the five-year plan than God has given us. And so I'm very free. Like people a lot of times will ask me, well, are you going to do such and such? And a lot of times I'll say, well, that's not clear to me yet. But what I really am saying is um, I, I, the Lord has not revealed that to me yet. Like it's, I don't really have a sense that this is something on heaven's appointments. But I don't go into that if it's Avi from CDC saying, well, Susan, are you going to do such and such? And I'll say, like, well, Avi, I just cannot promise. Like it's not clear yet. But, like, I will tell you soon. So that also is helpful answer and I don't really think it's a cop out. You guys, it's been great being with you. Thanks for being warm. Thanks for being here. I'm excited about what God has for all of us. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm gonna break everything before I go. So here. why don't you take a five minute stretch break, water break, um, and we'll come back then at eleven for the second hour. Thank you. It was wonderful. Safe travels. I hope we meet again. <gasps> Okay, I hope someone's coming to help with the tech. In the meantime, I'm just going to start. So, um, first of all, someone distributed these sheets in here before we started. Um, We didn't know they were doing that. It's a sheet on um, vaccines, and so that's not from us. It's not endorsed by us if you did get one, and we're wondering what the situation is with that. So I'm um, Allison Bruark. I'm a social epidemiologist. My PhD is from Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, and I studied international health there and was also um, in a program called Social and Behavioral Interventions. So we were really concerned with the social side of epidemiology, um, and that's still the work I do, looking at why people behave the ways that they do, the social and cultural environments that um, constrain people's choices often or, or influence their health decisions. So that's my orientation. Um, I'm a researcher. I am now assistant professor at Wheaton College, uh, the Christian College. Yes, I have some Wheaton students, probably Wheaton graduates. Okay, who here is a Wheaton graduate? Wow, a lot of you. So, um, not, I, I'm sorry, not a lot, several, several of you. <laughs> Glad to see you. I do deal with data also, not just uh, qualitative data. Um, So it's my second year there, and before that I did not know I was going to become a professor. I, um, for about a decade, 15 years, had one foot in the research world and then one foot in implementation, um, working with organizations, NGOs, often faith-based organizations, to... um, 
design and evaluate. So I've done a lot of monitoring and evaluation, and I'm going to talk about that a little. Has anyone from tech support shown up? I'm just looking at people entering the room. Okay, it remains a mystery why my computer recognizes this screen. The screen is not recognizing. Oh, it did. Good. Praise God. So they must have prayed. Okay. And of course, with all eyes on me, I cannot figure out my password. Okay. There we go. And hopefully this works where I see my notes and you don't see my notes. Yes. Wait, why are you saying that? Okay. Sorry, I need to get rid of that window, apparently. We'll get there. Okay. Here we are. Okay. Um... So what else was I saying? Yeah, most of my career before coming to Wheaton last year, um, it had been entirely in Africa. Um, I lived there for in southern Africa for seven years right before coming to Wheaton. But before that, I had been based in the U.S. and working in Africa. So I primarily worked on HIV in Africa. That's part of what I'm going to talk about today. Um, and what else to say? Yeah, I, I just love the way this morning has been orchestrated. I think it's, you know, the Holy Spirit, just the way the plenary has happened. And Susan and I did not know each other before this session, did not coordinate this. We're both talking about Eswatini. Um, interesting coordination there, too. And I just love that we're hearing from these voices of people who are working for health and wholeness in the world through means and paths other than clinical medicine um, or, or healthcare delivery. So that's also what I'm going to be talking about. And I hope that these sessions this morning are part of just broadening our minds to how God is at work in the world in, to bring health and healing. So this session is called Public Health and Missions. I am not a missionary. I've never been a missionary. So I'm just going to propose a small change. I have way too much respect for missions to give that name to something that isn't isn't missions, but I truly believe in the mission of God in the world, that God's on a mission to um, save the world, to bring health and healing to every part of the world, and I believe I get to be part of that mission through the work I do. So I don't see it as missions. I see it as part of being part of the mission of God in the world. I just have to say it's something like 15 years since I came to this conference. Um, last time I came, I was getting my master's in public health. Didn't hear a lot of public health being discussed here. So it's really fun to come back 15 years later and just see it on the agenda in a way it wasn't 15 years ago. And I see that a lot of people working in medicine and clinical practice are actually doing what I consider to be public health. Maybe they don't see it as public health, but I, I do. I heard a wonderful presentation on that yesterday. So um, it's just really great to see that um, just Christians working in public health and embracing that side of health in a way I'm not sure it was happening 15 years ago. All right, so um, I'm a professor. I have learning objectives. Um, I'm let me say, I'm very used to holding um, people captive in a room for two hours at a time. It's what I do as a professor. I teach a lot of two-hour classes. And my strategy is to try to not do anything for more than 20 minutes because that's the limit of the human attention span. So for me and the students to survive, I try to do that. I'm going to try to do that today. So we're going to do some different things. Um, in the middle of this hour, I'm going to ask you to 
do some Bible study, thinking, investigation, and discussion with me, so it will not be talking. Um, but I want to define public health. Dr. Hillis has done a brilliant job of talking about public health as well, but um, I want to share some thoughts there. Consider to what degree a public health perspective or approach is consistent with the gospel. I personally believe public health reflects a lot of biblical truths, um, you know, truths of the kingdom of God, but it's not the kingdom of God. I think any field we're in, we have to really critically evaluate what here is consistent with the kingdom of God and what isn't. Um, Explore how a public health perspective may be relevant to other health-focused professions and ministries. So I really hope there's something in these presentations this morning for everyone, no matter what you're doing when it comes to healthcare. And finally, I want to talk about my research some um, as a case study of a public health intervention. Um, and in particular, I, I work with couples and couple strengthening programs at this point in my career. Okay, so it's a much bigger group than I expected today. And I had no idea if I would be preaching to the choir or preaching to the curious. So um, by the choir, I mean if I'm preaching to the choir, it's people who know what public health is. Maybe you're studying public health, doing public health. You just came because you love public health and saw it in the title. Um, Maybe I don't have that much to teach you this morning. And the public health curious, welcome to you as well. If you're sitting here and thinking, I have no idea what public health is, or maybe you've just been hearing it for the first time this weekend. So can I just see a show of hands if you're part of the public health choir? Know what it is, working there. Okay, maybe about half of us. Public health curious. Okay, very mixed group. Welcome to both groups. So what is public health? Um, It's an interesting time in history during this pandemic that public health is like front page news all the time. My epidemiologist friends and I, we joke that finally people know what we do a little, at least. At least they, they know the word and, you know, what we are. This wasn't the case two years ago. Um, so here's a yeah, front-page story from the New York Times. This is way back in February when we hit half a million deaths. I promise you public health was not front-page news in the New York Times prior to this pandemic. This month's Christianity Today, I was delighted when it arrived in my mailbox with the cover story with the words public health. I am here today and not teaching my epidemiology class at Wheaton College. My students are reading this article today. Um, And I have to say, when I first saw the headline, I think very highly of CT and their coverage, and yet I was skeptical. I thought, this is probably pastors writing this article who don't really know what public health is. No, this is written by two epidemiologists at Harvard. And I really just commend this article. I commend CT for putting this issue on their front page. It's really important research about how the declines we're seeing in church attendance are having a huge impact on our health as a country. It's not what I'm here to talk about today. I just have to highlight this because I was so happy to see the church engaging with public health and actually talking about this issue. So read the article. You did. Good. (laughs) Extra extra credit. Okay. Um, I also want to commend you. If you don't know about this journal, a great journal, um, the editor is here. Yes, um, Daniel O'Neill. So, Christian Journal for Global Health. Um, And, yeah, part of what we're considering here at this, well, today at this conference is um, vaccinations. They're planning an issue on that, so I'm excited to read that when it comes out. They have great coverage. Global health, there's a lot of overlap between public health and global health. Yeah. 
All right, so let's start with some key concepts, which may be old hat, but in case not, um, I'm always thinking in this field, how does this line up with the kingdom of God and, and how I understand health as a Christian? And I see a lot of overlap, so I want to highlight that. So here's the definition of health from the Constitution of the World Health Organization adopted in 1946. They define health as complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Anyone see anything missing there? Yeah. And that's been debated um, through the decades, should spiritual be part of that definition. It hasn't been adopted. I would certainly add it. I think we all would. So public health, to give a short and sweet definition from the CDC Foundation, is protecting and improving the health of people and communities. Okay, so that's the public health side of things. Let's talk about the biblical side of things. I'm sure you all know the word and the concept of shalom. Here's the definition of that. Um, wholeness, multidimensional, and complete well-being. All relationships put right. So it's a really broad view of what I would consider to be health. I mean, um, it's defined in the Bible as peace, but I see a lot of overlap here between World Health Organization definition and, as Christians, what we believe God's, God's intent and desire is for all the people of the world. One of my favorite verses, I don't usually read the King James, I just love this verse in the King James, um, where the psalmist says that thy way may be known upon earth by saving health among all nations. I'm not a biblical scholar. I did look up what word is that that's being translated as saving health. It's a word that literally means salvation. In newer translations, it's translated as um, saving power or just salvation. But I love this idea of saving health and the idea of saving health going out to all nations. So again, um, how big do we think God's conception of salvation really is? I would say it's more than just our our spiritual selves and our souls, I think it extends to our whole beings. So I'm a social epidemiologist, to give you one slide on what that means. Um, social epidemiology focuses on the effects of social and structural factors on states of health. We're looking at the upstream factors. If that term isn't familiar to you, I'm going to talk about it in just a minute. But we're looking at... Um, how all this stuff going on in our world, our societies, um, poverty, uh, issues of economic justice um, relates to health. And we assume that the distribution of advantages and disadvantages in a society is reflecting the distribution of health and disease. As epidemiologists, one of our core tenets is disease is never randomly distributed. So we're trying to figure out, it's not randomly distributed, who is getting uh, sick, living with ill health and disability, and why. And as a social epidemiologist, I'm really just concerned with issues of, um, of justice and how that translates into health. So I'm going to tell you about three things I see as being distinctives of a public health approach. You may look at these and say, those aren't just part of public health. That's part of you know how I practice medicine or or do your work, great. I'm not claiming these are unique to public health. I do think um, together, for me, they kind of define what a public health perspective is. So first, a focus on prevention. 
and the social determinants of health. There was a great presentation on social determinants of health yesterday. Some of you may have heard it. Um, a primary care physician, Dr. Ackerman, who's worked in Nepal over decades, living there, and now um, they have just tons of great stuff going on there, looking at social determinants of health. And she had such a great testimony of how, as a physician, she was noticing, noticing in her practice that um, if they didn't fix issues like malnutrition, women's um, position in the home, gender inequity, um, agricultural practices, that really they were just constantly treating the same conditions that could be prevented. So this is really a public health perspective. I got so excited hearing her talk about it because um, this is what we've been talking about in public health for a long time and social determinants of health is kind of a, a newer phrase that we're using to refer to that. So this is um, from CDC, um, this definition that SDOH is uh, the conditions in the environments where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health functioning and quality of life outcomes and risks. It's kind of a wordy definition. I love the definition Dr. Ackerman gave yesterday. She said it's all the non-medical stuff that affects the medical stuff. And I thought, yeah, that's a great, great definition. And then uh, CBC is breaking it into five different aspects, which you can see there. Um, I also want to bring in here this concept of upstream and downstream. So by upstream, we're thinking about prevention. We're thinking about all that social determinant of health stuff that comes before the patient shows up in a doctor's office with, you know, severely burned or with tuberculosis or malnutrition or whatever the situation is. So when we're talking about upstream factors, we're thinking, how do we promote healthy environments? How do we prevent injury and illness? How do we address social injustice? We want to think about the causes and the root causes um, and dealing with those things. And there is certainly a role for the downstream stuff, reacting to problems. You know, you need to, to treat the patient. Um, treating illness and injury. Um, no, this one, we don't want to ignore social inequities. But these, um, yeah, it's is the downstream um, actions that, that we need. But really, we want to go upstream and stop these problems at, at their source. And so that's what public health is trying to do. Thank you for the amen. <laughs> um, a second distinctive, a focus on populations. So usually when I have to give like a three-word definition to someone of what is public health, as distinct from medicine, I say prevention and populations versus treatment and individuals. So the populations part, um, we're thinking about the whole population. We're thinking about equity. We're thinking about justice. I have young children, so I kind of speak Disney now. But um, one of the ways I think about this is no one gets left behind. Um, you know, which is from Toy Story, but also just a great, a, a great way, I think, to look at this, um, that we want health for everyone. I mean, health for a few who can afford it, pay for it, that's not good enough. We're going for justice. We're going for equity. We're trying to make sure that those who are systematically shut out of good health get brought in. Um, Dr. Hillis mentioned Bill Figge. I had no idea he was a Christian until like half an hour ago. I'm so excited because I already loved this quote. Um, so he's the director of the CDC. She mentioned that thought kept going back and forth between being a missionary and working at the CDC. So he said, the purpose of public health is to promote social justice. Its philosophical base is social justice and its scientific base is epidemiology. Um, I've always loved this quote. I love it even more, knowing that it came from a man of God. Now, so last distinctive, 
is a focus on a broad and holistic view of health. So we've talked about shalom. Um, I think in a nutshell, I would say we're talking about health and not just health care. We're talking about wellness, creating wellness, and not just treating disease and injury. All right. Um, God and justice. So this is kind of going back to point number two. I just want to make it again. The Bible has so much to say about God being a God of justice. It's all over the place. And I read this psalm sometime last year, and it struck me. Have you ever thought about God as being someone who gets angry every day? I never had. Um, I get angry pretty much every day. I'm not saying my anger is as pure as God's anger, but I do think it's part of what motivates me in this field. I think anger at its best is looking around and saying the world is not what it should be and we need to do something. And um, are there any other Enneagram 8s out here? You know who you are. Me too. Yeah, so for Enneagram 8s, we kind of you know, run on anger, but I think it can be a really good and holy thing if we let God transform it into something holy that's motivating us to action. So the psalmist says, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Awake, my God. Decree justice. He may have been an Enneagram 8. I don't know. Bring an end to the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. So God gets angry in the right ways, at the right things, um, and may we be more like God in that way to seek justice. So these slides are um, some slides from the CDC that I show my students in, in defining public health. So I'm just going to go through them and just insert the church in here where I think the church belongs, and we can think about that. I loved Dr. Hillis's, um, man, just testimony after testimony of why the church needs to be part of this work. So just more on that. So um, this is a definition that's 100 years old from one of the kind of fathers of public health. And he says, um, it's the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting health through the organized efforts and informed choices of society, organizations, public and private communities, and individuals. So shouldn't the church be part of this? Yes, I would say. Um, another definition that the mission of public health from the Institute of Medicine is fulfilling, fulfilling society's interest in assuring conditions in which people can be healthy. A mission for the church. I would say yes. And we're looking for the maximum benefit for the largest number of people. Back to that question of justice and equity. I'm not going to go all through this, but this is, according to the CDC, 10 essential public health services. Where does the church fit in? I would say right here. Um, I'm so delighted to hear Dr. Hillis talk about the CDC wanting to form partnerships with churches. It's not always that way within the public health um, community, but I want us to be at the forefront of saying, yes, we're your partners in the community. We want to go out and, um, and create health and justice in our communities. Okay, so... 20 minutes in, um, and I'm going to have you do some thinking on your own or with whoever is next to you about the question of what the gospel tells us about our rights and our obligations. So I want us to consider um, to what degree is a public health perspective consistent with the gospel, especially looking at those questions of rights and obligations. So I have to say, I always knew that my fellow public health professionals, my public health community was fairly skeptical of people of faith, especially Christians, 
before Wheaton, I had spent nearly my whole career um, in secular environments where often I was the only Christian in the room. And I've seen a lot of skepticism towards the church. I had no idea before this pandemic that the church was so skeptical of public health. And that's deeply grieved my heart. Um, And that's come up already today. Someone asked a question about that. So I'm not the only person seeing this. And I think a lot of the debate has been over understandings of rights and obligations. As people, what are our rights? What are our obligations? Um, Public health talks about these things, often in terms of citizens have the rights and governments have the obligations and responsibilities. I'm not 100% on board with that. I'm not sure that's um, really how the gospel tells us to think about rights and obligations. So I want you to take just five minutes by yourself or with your neighbor, better with your neighbor actually, and talk out what does the Bible have to say about rights and obligations, and then report back. Okay, we'll talk about it.
Okay, so take one minute and wrap up. One minute and wrap up. One minute. <laughs> Okay, so who had someone in your group say something really, really great that you want to share on their behalf or have them share? So who had someone in your group say something really great? Anyone? I'm not grading you on participation like I grade my students on participation, but let's um, try to get a just Yes, go ahead. I think a lot of attention comes from, during scriptural times, community was based on society was more important than individual. Yeah. In America, individual is more important than society and the good of you know, our neighbors. Great observation. Yeah, and, and how's the Bible telling us to live? Because that's the real question, right? Oh, I'll repeat that. So um, that the Bible was written to societies in which society, the group, was a lot more important than the individual. And now we're living in a society in which the individual is a lot more important than the group, at least in the U.S. And I said, great observation. And then the question becomes, so how is the Bible telling us to live? Because culture is never an excuse if the Bible's telling us to live in a different way, right? To live with a kingdom of God culture, not an American culture. So any thoughts on that? Or go ahead and share what you talked about in your group on another, in another way. Anyone come up with like specific verses you were talking about? Yeah. Um, so I, I think we identified, I agree with this about rights and obligations, but yeah. we identified maybe a couple other layers to it. Yeah. I don't think it all comes down to rights and obligations. Yeah. We talked about this issue of, uh, one is the, the differing interpretations of, of interventions yeah. Um, some of it just depending on comfort levels and associations and stuff that when 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 a healthcare worker sees somebody in a mask, we're just like, yeah, that's okay, that's normal, we do that all the time. But whereas for some people, seeing somebody in a mask, they get afraid, they're, they're worried. Mm-hmm. So you think about kids seeing people in masks and what it's doing to them, and you know, there's there's a lot of interpretive difference where we'll both will be seeing the same yeah. event, but it'll have whole different associations for us, the color, how we respond to it. That was one, and the second one was just about this question of, are we living in fear versus mm-hmm. living in faith? And that's one of the interpretive grids that people are applying mm-hmm. yeah. to this thing. So yeah, great comments. Bottom line here is that people in the church, the people of God, are interpreting the same things in very different ways. Something as simple as wearing a mask is seen by different people in different ways. Um, the question of, are we living in fear versus faith? Um, I've seen this debate happen a lot within the church, and everyone wants to live by faith and not fear, and what that means to us as individuals can be quite different, Yeah, how that works itself out. Anybody talk about specific Bible verses? Or, or you can offer another comment, but I think yeah, as much as possible, we need to go back to the Bible as our source of truth, right? Yeah. So Lloyd was bringing up basically the concepts of Philippians, too, of like, Christ, even though he had all the rights in the world, reduced himself as a servant to serve out of obligation. Not obligated. He wasn't obligated necessarily, but like he became that servant to all of us to become nothing so that then at 
his name, like, we all looked him, and he didn't necessarily bring up Philippians 2, but it was the crux of Philippians 2. Yeah, yeah, so Philippians 2, yeah. Christ being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, yeah, but became a servant, yeah. Great. Hand in the back, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Galatians six two carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah, law and not a suggestion. Um, and yeah, Jesus talks about very similar things. I mean, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him to um, yeah, other hands, yes. Love one another. Yeah, love one another. And all the other one another. Yeah, yeah, we have two commandments, and that's one of them. Yeah, love one another. Yeah, um, I'm going to go back here to the back, and then um, in the orange. Yeah, Luke 10, where we go to the Samaritan, where he was not obligated, but he did. Because an obligation is something we do for ourselves, but we yeah, story of the Good Samaritan. You read my mind. That's my next slide. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's go over here in the green. Uh, I was thinking about James 2, like, what good is our faith if we say, go and eat and drink and work and fill the without giving them the things needed for the body? Yeah. And then how Paul tells the church that it's their obligation to take care of workers and widows. Yeah. So James 2, this scathing criticism, yeah, don't say go be warm and well-fed if you're not actually doing something. Yeah, and religion that God considers pure is to care for widows and orphans. Yeah, maybe one more comment, and then there was another hand. Someone else. In the back, yes. Thanks so much, Dr. Daisy. Yeah, love. Um, yeah, the command to love one another, to to lay down our lives. Yeah, I wanted us to think through this because I've just been so grieved during this pandemic. I feel like we may have some legitimate differences at the end of the day, like the story that Dr. Hill has told about her church, that they weren't on the same page at the beginning. I'm grieved that I feel like we're not having the right conversation. And as we debate how should we respond to this pandemic, I'm grieved that we're talking so little about, I feel like, about love, about um, our obligations to each other. I hear a lot of rhetoric about individual rights that I cannot find in scripture. I mean, if you can, I'm willing to be corrected. I, I don't see it. So, um, yeah, the first thing I think about with this is the story of the Good Samaritan. I've reflected on this a lot over the course of the pandemic, um, this story of who is my neighbor so that's why Jesus told the story, right? Because someone asked him the question, who's my neighbor? And he said, you know, I'll tell you. So, um, of course, in this story, the Samaritan is caring for someone who is a stranger, caring for him in a costly, sacrificial way. There's no guarantee this man's life is even going to be saved. Um, and I think the call here is, of course, that 
you know, everyone's our neighbor. There are no real strangers. Um, and that every person we will ever interact with is, is a child of God and known to God. Um, and I think we have obligations to each other. And during this pandemic, I think, I mean, as an epidemiologist, I, I think in webs, you know, I worked in HIV for years and HIV spreads through social networks. COVID spreads through social networks. The weird thing about COVID is it spreads to people who are strangers based on our decisions, right? Um, and we don't have control over how our decisions could spread a disease through a network and impact people we will never meet. And I think we have to take Jesus seriously here. Who is our neighbor? It's all those strangers we may never meet, but yet our our actions may affect their, their life and death. So just something to think about. I'm challenged every time I read this story seriously about how costly love can be. And we're each other's keepers. Um, I think about this verse, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So rights, like I said, I'm challenged to find any verses in scripture that speak about us defending our individual rights. Um, My conclusion is the Bible mostly talks about laying down our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And it's fascinating if you really get into those debates in the early church, things that are not familiar to us. You know, it's debates over circumcision and meat sacrifice to idols, but it's actually the same debates I think we're having now about what are our rights versus honoring our our brothers and sisters and acting in love. So I think there's a lot of wisdom there, just in a very different cultural context that we don't always see. Um, I thought I was going to have an hour and 15 minutes, and um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have... I'm not going to have us discuss this, but I hope that you're just going away with some thoughts about how might this perspective apply to your work. And I wish we had time to, I was picturing a much smaller group in which we could all kind of tell our stories. So I'm sorry we don't have time to do that, but um, I'd love to chat with some of you after about how you're seeing this um, work itself out in your work. So in our last 20 minutes or so, I want to talk to you about the research I've been involved in for a while. Um, as I said, I've never been a missionary, um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying this is missions. I think it is part of the mission of God, um, which is to bring total health, peace, and shalom to every person, every relationship, every family, every community, every country in the world. It's a big, big vision. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I got into couple strengthening and also say I really see it relating to what we've heard this morning about orphans. I'm going to show you some data from Eswatini in a minute, but across Africa, um, there are a lot more children being orphaned by family breakdown, not growing up with parents due to family breakdown, than to any disease. So I see this um, area of couples strengthening as really orphan prevention. That's one benefit and has so many benefits to society. So I started working in HIV um, maybe about 15 years ago because does anyone know kind of the story of HIV in Uganda? It's well known in Christian circles, I think. So HIV prevalence declined um, by about two-thirds in the decade from 1991 to 2001. When I was starting to work in this area in the mid-2000s, that was still our biggest success story when it came to HIV anywhere in the world. Um, Uganda was using an ABC approach of abstain, be faithful, use condoms. And it was data like this. I loved just the affirmation this morning that um, that data can 
can tell the story of what God's doing in the world. It can also be part of using data well, can be part of love. But it was data like this that got me into HIV. I know this is a lot to interpret at first glance. This is basically showing trends. Um, light blue is 1989, dark blue is 1995. We're looking at three sexual behaviors. And what we're seeing is big changes in these three sexual behaviors in the right direction over this period in which HIV was also declining. So I saw this data and I thought, God's doing something there. You know, when I was reading about um, what was happening in the church there, this was largely happening through the church, preaching God's good news for sexuality. Um, And one of the main researchers of this was this guy at um, Harvard, was he at Harvard yet, named Ted Green. Um, I ended up working with him at Harvard Total God thing. I, you know, when I first read his research, had no idea. A couple of years later, we would be collaborating and writing a book together. We did. Um, he's not a believer. He's a medical anthropologist who was honest enough to see data and say the only thing that's working for HIV prevention in Africa at this point was sexual behavior change, and that the church was was part of that. So that was um, my work in HIV for a while, and I just kept going upstream in my questions. You know, to say, and I was also doing some work like with the World Bank and um, UNAIDS and pretty major global organizations were on board with partner reduction and saying, you know, we have to we have to work towards people reducing their number of sexual partners um, in order to prevent HIV. And then I kept asking questions of, okay, but how do people do that? How do they actually commit to a mutually monogamous relationship that takes a strong and respectful relationship? And how do we get there? And I always felt like no one had great answers for, you know, we knew what had to happen. People needed to change their sexual behavior, but how? And so those upstream factors um, I got really interested in, and finally um, that led me to a couple relationships and getting into the research of why the state of a couple relationship matters. So we have a lot of research to show that um, the quality of a couple relationship is linked to a wide range of health outcomes, morbidity, and mortality. So here's some data from Southern Africa just showing this incredibly strong correlation between people being married and having lower HIV risk. So in Eswatini, um, women who weren't married had three times higher HIV incidence at the rate of new HIV infections in South Africa even starker. Cohabiting individuals had five times higher HIV incidence than married individuals. Let me say it is not a popular point of view within public health that marriage matters. Um, I always say, had these data been reversed and we had found that married people had five times higher rates of HIV, you know, like UNAIDS and everybody would have been on it in an instant and that would have been the whole story for the next decade. The fact that we were finding lower HIV incidence among married people um, no one was ever really that interested in this, but I have been. So I think, and I, I feel like a lot of what I've done in my career is just kind of to witness to the truth, like witness to the truth of, you know, God's laws for us and for our relationships and for our sex, sexuality are made for our good. And when people follow those laws, they are blessed, whether they are Christians, Muslims, or, you know, anything else. Um, and it's just so obvious in the data. And many HIV prevention and treatment Interventions are influenced by couple-level dynamics. So the issue of strengthening couples for HIV prevention has never gotten much traction. It's gotten a lot more traction when we talk about um, ART adherence, adherence to HIV drugs, couples getting tested, um, reducing violence. So a lot of the work I've done since is working on couples for those other endpoints, but I just think 
strengthening couple relationships has such benefits across so many issues. So Espatini, um, that's where I did my PhD research in, oh, I moved there about 10 years ago. And it's fun that Dr. Hillis and I are both talking about the same country today. So there it is, tiny country in southern Africa. Um, as she said, the world's highest HIV prevalence, worst HIV epidemic, that continues. Um, there's a historical context to this. I love studying the context and the history. Um, so Southern Africa, the 20th century, was a century of colonization, urbanization, and industrialization. So we saw um, migration across the region. All these green arrows are pointing to the gold fields of South Africa. Families were split up. A lot of men were moving away to work in the gold mines, you know, 11 months of the year, um, not going home. And it just radically transformed societies across Southern Africa. And at the same time, um, these societies were being colonized, you know, pushed from the best land. Families could no longer support themselves on the marginal land they were pushed to. So we saw migration, separation of families and sexual partners, declining marriage rates, and unjust land policies, and the collapse of rural farming economies. I have to tell this story because it's not just that people in Southern Africa are making poor decisions, right? I mean, there's a lot of injustice that's gone on um, that's absolutely just led to... Um, Led, led to violence in, in societies and structural violence. So HIV and Eswatini, um, so we've heard, has the highest HIV prevalence in the world. So uh, Dr. Hill has presented, I think she said like 27% of women. You break it down by age, I mean, look how shockingly high that is. HIV prevalence peaks at above 50% for women in their 30s. So women in their 30s, more than half are living with HIV. For men, peaks at nearly 50%. Um, these statistics just broke my heart while I was living there. And praise God, we have HIV treatment now. We're seeing people live full, healthy lives in a way we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. But still, this is a devastating toll. Um, and so I have studied sexual partnerships for a long time, and what's fueling this is these unique relatively unique in the world patterns of sexual partnerships in which people have overlapping sexual partnerships. And again, there's a reason for that. Families have been broken down. Societies have been broken down. But we're left with um, some of the lowest marriage rates in the world. The most recent national data is from like 15 years ago. I'm sure it's even lower now. So look at those marriage rates. I mean, lowest marriage rates in the world. Um, and even if you count all the cohabitors and the married people, we're still not getting to 50%. So most adults, people are having sexual relationships, are having children. They're not doing it in the context of stable, committed relationships. These things are linked, right? And this issue of um, children. So again, this is old data. I'm sure it's worth now, uh, worse now. So fewer than... Uh, one in four children are living with both parents. The major reason for not living with parents is not the death of the parents. So if we work down this bar graph, um, the light purple and light green is children living with only one parent. Most of them, their other parent is living. The bottom two, dark purple and red, is children living with neither parent. Most of them, one parent is living. That's the red. And I just saw this over and over in Eswatini that... Um, families had broken down, relationships had failed, and so children were essentially being left orphaned, but not primarily because parents had died. 
So I got super interested in all this family structure stuff. Um, I'm not going to go through this in depth, but um, I did my dissertation research there. I published, I think, five articles from it. And this is just one of the articles. And I was really interested in questions of, like, what is universal in, in human beings that God has placed there that, that's good, that we yearn for, that we can build on in, um, in public health? And so my research was all qualitative, um, which is interviewing people, getting their stories. And so... I was asking people, I was training research assistants to do do the interviews in Saswati, but they were asking our participants, what makes a good relationship? We got these responses. I ranked them. One is higher. Um, And look at that. You know, I think if you were to survey any church in America, couples in any church in America, you would get a pretty similar list. And I just love seeing how um, God has implanted desires and needs, you know, in human hearts in every culture that I think are good, and we're all we're all longing for love, respect, honesty, trust, communication. So people know what they want. They know what a good relationship is. Um, people, interestingly, reported relatively high relationship satisfaction. I interviewed some who had uh, gotten marriage counseling through lay um, Christian counselors, but they had a world of relationship problems. Um, mostly, they talked about love without trust. And we did interviews over the course of about a year. So we really got to follow people's stories. You know, um, we weren't interviewing couples, just one individual. But someone would say, you know, I'm so happy with my partner. And six months later, um, the relationship had broken off and they had a broken heart. And so we kind of got to see in real time how troubled and, um, and fragile relationships were. We interviewed 14 women and 14 men. Every single woman had had at least one partner. Um, cheat on her, have a concurrent sexual partnership. And most men had had a partner, have a concurrent sexual partner. So a lot that was broken there. Um, Let's see, in the interest of time, I'm not going to dwell here. Just to say, we are just in the infancy of couples research in Africa. And just my dream is to have the kind of research from Africa and everywhere else in the world that's not North America and Europe, um, to someday have the same degree of research there showing that these couple and relationships, couple and family relationships matter that we do for the West. So this is showing research from um, the U.S. and and Europe and showing that couple relationships matter to all these different parts of health. I mean, this is you know research, not somebody just sitting down and philosophizing. Um, and we don't have this yet for Africa and I, or other under-resourced areas. I have no reason to think it's any different there. I think God has created us to need these relationships, and when they don't exist, people suffer at, at all levels. I mean, from all-cause mortality to um, chronic disease and, and heart disease to mental and emotional health. So I like to use this quote. It's from a psychologist. Um, I think as Christians, we know this, right? This is God's heart, that people need close trusting relationships. It's critical to our health. So what do we do about all that? That's all defining the problem. Um, I just want to highlight some of the work I've done on this. Um, I'm not going to go through this just because I want to leave a few minutes for questions. But basically, I got to help Catholic Relief Services develop a tool to say, how do we measure couple relationship functioning? We developed the tool, you know, have series of questions to ask about all these things. And lo and behold, we saw such strong correlations between relationship quality and all these health indicators that um, 
development organizations really care about. So this is showing a probability of mutual HIV testing and disclosure. It increases with relationship quality. I could show that same graph for basically anything we measured. And this is exciting to me. I love data. I love things we can measure. I love that we can actually measure, you know, what couples are strong and healthy. How does that play itself out in their health and which couples are really fragile and struggling? So the research I'm involved in now um, is mostly in Malawi. And I'm working with a PI, um, a woman about my age. She's a professor at UCSF. She's not a believer, and I love how God just keeps placing me with these non-believers who just see the truth and are pursuing the truth, um, and it's a privilege to work with her. So um, she has NIH funding, I think, now for three different grants. We're working with couples in Malawi and South Africa, um, and I get to work with her on that. So we're asking, how can we produce more culturally appropriate tools for African populations, um, like the CFAT. You know, we needed to develop something not for use in the U.S. (laughs) And we're saying, what interventions can we offer to help couples living um, with HIV, living with violence, living with alcohol use, and um, chronic disease? So here's the three grants we're working on currently. The first is my favorite because we were looking at these really fragile couples in Malawi who were living with HIV and alcohol use. Often that comes with violence in their relationship, chronic food insecurity. You know, they're spending money on alcohol that's not going to food. Um, Kind of everything's going wrong. And so we just started brainstorming, like, what would we really want to offer these couples? And we came up with this intervention that I think of a of as like everything but the kitchen sink, um, where we said, okay, we need economic strengthening, so small groups where they're meeting regularly, um, and um, there is some input of capital, but mostly they're just saving. There are savings groups. They need couple relationship strengthening, so there's that component to talk about the couple relationship. They need ART adherence. Can we do this all together? NIH actually funded it, praise God. Um, So, you know, it's kind of out of the box, a small pilot study, and to see can this work to actually strengthen these really fragile couples. Um, There's a bigger grant looking at um, cardiometabolic comorbidities, so diabetes, um, heart disease, and can strengthening the couple relationship help help manage those diseases. And now we just got, she just got another grant for um, people using... I'm sorry, that should say South Africa in the last point. Yeah, for people living with HIV and alcohol in, in South Africa. But all of these are couple-based interventions. Um, okay, in the interest of time, I'm going to skip this. And that one final comment. Um, I still get to do some work with Christian NGOs, which I love. So this month I am working on an evaluation for World Relief. They have this beautiful program called Families for Life. There are a lot of Christian organizations with programs like this, trying to work with couples, to strengthen couples, um, to address you know, HIV, nutrition, kind of the whole, the whole bundle of, um, of health issues that families deal with. And so I'm um, coming up with an evaluation protocol for them this month, and I just love that USAID is wanting the evidence on this to say, does this work? And I see monitoring and evaluation as being part of you know, making the case for the work the church is already doing and hopefully in a way that attracts resources. So that's all I have. We have five minutes left. Oh, no, one. this is important. This, this phrase, it is too small a thing. This has been in my head for a couple weeks, and I think hopefully it's the Holy Spirit um, and worth sharing today. But this is something that God says, oh, I 
forgot the reference. It's Isaiah 49. Um, God says to Isaiah, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. So I don't want to be guilty of like misinterpreting this, but I think the heart here is just beautiful. That I mean, Isaiah probably could hardly dream of actual restoration of Israel, much less a bigger vision, right? And yet God says to him, this impossible thing you can't imagine, that's actually too small. Let's, let's dream bigger. Um, and I think it's a call to all of us to, you know, is God saying to us, it's too small a thing to think of health in this limited capacity or to think of ways God wants to work here? And is he wanting, wanting to expand our vision to think bigger about what health means, about where health should go to the ends of the earth? Um, so just kind of a final call to ask ourselves, yeah, are we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, dreaming big enough? And I love public health because I think, for me, it's a way to dream big about health for the whole world and actual um, healed relationships and health and wholeness and the fullest sense of health for everyone. So um, I'm sorry I've gone so long. I'd love to take a question or two. Yes. No, we, we um, validated it in four African countries, so it's very much not for the U.S., and it's available on a Catholic Relief Services website. So, yeah, free to use. Um, just Google it, and they want to use. Is there something yeah. like that that's really simple? Um, you can email me. Yeah, something simple, no. <laughs> but, I mean, um, yeah, email me, because basically there are a lot of tools out there, and it's figuring out. Usually it's taking several and using them together for whatever you're trying to measure. Yeah. I guess you could use it with the U.S. We just didn't develop it for that. Yeah. Other other questions? Yes, in the back. What's that? Um, I was last there probably three or four years ago. I haven't traveled during the pandemic. Yeah, and I hope to go next year. Yes. Uh, do you have a, a data about, like, white, even though the marriage rate is low, what age? For, for, for white evangelicals? Yeah. Um, I don't have those numbers. I know Mark Regnerus is a brilliant sociologist, Christian sociologist. He's studied this. He's had like front page articles in Christianity Today. So it's R-E-G-N-E-R-U-S. He has that data. If you Google him, you'll find good stuff he's written. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Can I second the question that was asked to I wish I had like a magic solution there. Yeah, I think, you know, we're called to bear one, with one another and keep the relationships. And I think I have pretty close family members that we, we have bitter disagreements over things during this pandemic. Um, and I think God just keeps challenging me that we are family for eternity. That's actually true of all of us within the body of Christ, especially people I'm actually related to. Um, so I think just to keep gently, you know, giving information when people want it. And at this point, I'm, I'm done trying to talk to people who really don't want to hear it. And I think I just want to focus on the relationship and hope there's a door down the road. Yeah, that's open. 
And I think we all just need more humility, right? Even when I believe I'm really right about something, I need more humility. Okay, thanks so much. I'd love to chat with you after if you didn't get to ask your question.